Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. I watched all of Seinfeld not that long ago, from the pilot to the finale, um, and I will say now it totally holds up. And one of the best parts is watching Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Elaine. Now, if you type Elaine Bennis, character's full name, into Google, one of the first things you see is a video clip of her dance, her horrible, embarrassing, spastic dance. It's more like a full-body dry heave set the music. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus came up with it herself. I created it, yeah. I did. Did you, like, stand at home in front of a full-length mirror? Yes. And just think, which of these dance moves looks the worst? Yeah, I remember my mom was staying with us at the time visiting, and I came downstairs to the kitchen, and I said, okay, which looks worse? I had a couple of options, and they all voted for the one that you that you saw. But that said, I can dance a little bit. So they couldn't play the music when I was doing that, because if they played music... I, it would be hard to fight the rhythm of the music. Thing. You would accidentally start dr- dancing properly. <laughs> yeah, kind of, yes. It's Bullseye. <laughs> on this show, we talk to Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She stars as Vice President Selena Meyer on the HBO comedy V. If you haven't seen that show, seriously, why haven't you? The thing's great. She and show creator Armando Iannucci made conscious choices when developing her character. She's kind of powerless. She makes a lot of mistakes, but she isn't a bumbling idiot. Which is an easy place to go, and you could definitely make that funny. But it's the easiest way to go. And we'll talk with Julia Louis-Dreyfus about her favorite dirty line from Veep. There are a lot to choose from. You know, I did a bit of swearing research in Washington. That's actually the creator of Veep, Armando Iannucci. He lives in Britain, but he's an expert in American politics. I, you know, I'm one of the few people to have read all 4,000-page volumes of Robert Caro's unfinished biography of Lyndon Johnson. And how silly our politics get. Your government is a work of genius in how complicated a mechanism it has to ensure that nothing happens. And the singer and songwriter Billy Bragg will talk about the song that changed his life. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we're joined by our favorite critics with recommendations for culture worth your time. This week, we're joined by Kyle Ryan, managing editor, and Nathan Rabin, the head writer of the AV Club. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hello. Great. It's going absolutely fantastic. Thanks for asking. Kyle, let's start with your recommendation. The new album from The Thermals, Desperate Ground. Uh, They're a band from Portland, Oregon. Let's take a listen to one of the tracks from the album, The Sword by My Side. Sun at my back, wind in my way, the path like the light, like the light will decay, the hand at the end of my arm holds tight, those what we fight for.
So what do you like about this record, Kyle? Well, it's being touted, uh, you know, it's it's got the cliche uh, return to form tag tied to it, but it's actually, that's actually pretty accurate. Their last record was a little quieter and more subdued. Uh, this one's just more of the straight up, like, loud, punky rock that they made their name playing and uh, and that fans love so much. So the songs are really good. They're hooky. They're, uh, it's exactly what you want from the Thermals. Nathan Rabin, let's talk about It's a Disaster. This is a new black comedy uh, written and directed by Todd Berger, and it stars David Cross and Julia Stiles, among others. It's on VOD and out now in select theaters. Tell me about it. Sure. It is a, sort of a comedy of manners, a sort of a little bit in a Whit Stillman, uh, Noah Baumbach uh, sort of vein, about this couple's brunch, uh, where you discover that kind of the couple that was kind of holding the group of friends together is getting divorced, and everybody freaks out about that. They deal very, very poorly with it. Um, there is an outsider uh, played by David Cross, who's dating uh, one of the friends, who's played by Julia Stiles. Um, <laughs> and you kind of see a lot of this uh, sort of experience through his eyes, through the eyes of somebody who doesn't really understand what's going on, who's trying to make a good impression. Um, and then uh, pretty early into the film, it becomes apparent that the world is ending and the brunch is uh, rudely interrupted uh, by the apocalypse. And things take a bit of a dark turn when it becomes apparent that humanity will not survive. What's everybody doing? Was oh, that radio? Have you tried it? Not yet. Gosh. Why not? Because I just found out that my husband is my best friend. Best friend. Okay, well, let's uh, put a pin in that for now. Why don't we and find out if this works and if we're going to live or die. Oh, thank God it works. And then it takes an even darker turn in the third act. And that, that turn doesn't entirely work, but it's a really, really fun, really weird, really interesting dark comedy with a fantastic uh, performance by David Cross and a really interesting, quirky, offbeat film worth checking out. Nathan Rabin, head writer for the AV Club, recommends It's a Disaster, out now in select theaters and available on Video On Demand. And Kyle Ryan, managing editor, recommends The Thermal's new album, Desperate Ground. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Armando Iannucci quit a doctoral program in Milton to become a television comedy writer, and it turns out that was a good call. He worked on about half of the great British comedy shows of the last 20 years, from The Day to Day to I'm Alan Partridge to The Thick of It. The shows share a bitterly satirical perspective and a fondness for the way language can twist, bend, and break, along with the ideas it contains. Recently, he started working on our side of the Atlantic. He started with the acclaimed film In the Loop, which mixed characters from the thick of it in with American politics in a satire of the run-up to war. His show Veep, about the desperate, ineffectual denizens of the vice president's office, is in its second season on HBO. As the second season begins, the vice president, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, is hitting home runs on the campaign trail. But as this montage demonstrates, her facility with empty promises and slogans isn't quite boundless. North Dakota, we can do this together. There is no I in freedom. Freedom is not needum. 
It's Weedum! I visited a dance studio in Hartford, Connecticut. When I was there, I met a brave firefighter in a wheelchair. Back then, we didn't know what HIV positive was, which meant he had to lose his kidney. He shook my hand and he said, you don't remember me, but I am your grandpa. Armando Iannucci, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Nice to be back. So I I guess my first question is, I I know that you have long closely followed British politics. Mm. Um, And in fact, you occasionally appear as a a political commentator on actual news programs uh, in the UK. Yes, which is very strange because occasionally I'm working myself up to a joke. And (laughs) as I say something straight, the audience applauds. And then I realize it's a different sort of audience to a comedy show. <laughs> well, you could also be describing the audience of The Daily Show. So, All right. <laughs> um, so here's my, here's my question for you. Did you also follow American politics or was it relatively new to you? No, I did. I'm a bit of a political geek. Uh, uh, and uh, I've always, uh, you know, we're, we're five or six hours out uh, so I would stay up very, very late in the UK during uh, American election night to watch the results, even when I was about 14 or 15. That's a kind of strange person you're speaking to. Um, and I think there's something about the drama and also because American politics affects uh, beyond America. So this is important stuff that's happening. I've, I've not been, you know, when I was much younger, I wasn't really a political activist as such, but I, I was fascinated by the the, the theatre of politics. I'm trying to do the math in my head, mm. Armando, of you as a 14-year-old mm. staying up to watch the election returns yes. in the United States. Like those, I had to stay up to watch those, and I live on the west coast of the United States. Like, oh, really? We're talking about like 5 o'clock in the morning. By the time you vote, hasn't the president already been elected and inaugurated? Well, I don't live in Hawaii. <laughs> and carried out his first year of... Uh... <laughs> I know, it's weird. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have an explanation for it other than, you know, I've always found it fascinating. And, and, and I've been fascinated by American history and political history, you know, right from the 1950s onwards. And, I, you know, I'm one of the few people to have read all 4,000-page volumes of Robert Caro's unfinished biography of Lyndon Johnson. I've often had to explain to some of the American cast how the American Constitution works. <laughs> Whenever they've been asking about, you know, House legislation versus Senate and and majorities and supermajorities and things like that, I've um I've kind of enjoyed uh, explaining it to them. How are the, I say, inefficiencies, but you could also say bumblings or structural brokennesses of your government different than those of my government? Well, um, your government is a work of genius in how complicated a mechanism it has to ensure that nothing happens. Um, And and you've taken 200 years to get it absolutely right. But I think you've now arrived at that state where 
you're an absolute zero. In the, <laughs> well, in initially the, we didn't have the filibuster, you know, the, like yeah. the really full-throated filibuster that we have now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think you've now perfected it to an art form about how not to do anything uh, on a daily basis. Um, whereas the British government sort of stumbles along. I think the, I think the, the intention has always been there to try and do something, but sure, through sheer kind of exhaustion and uh, and then lack of relevance um <laughs> that the will has just been sucked out of us so that we don't do anything i want to play a clip from the thick of it which is your british show that in many ways shares a uh, shares a sensibility with veep um so in this clip basically on the show you're looking at a, a series of protagonists who are all uh, ministers in a governmental department which yeah. is essentially uh Functionless, mm. and and they're constantly in a state of public relations crisis. Mm. So in this scene, uh, the minister, whose name is Hugh Abbott, has just come into the office. He's flustered from an interview with a reporter, mm-hmm. and uh, that the reason is that that interview has implicated him in a real estate scandal that mm. could hurt a new housing bill. Yeah, and all of this has taken place over the course of just a, a couple of minutes. Mm. So let's take a listen. What's How was that? What, what is happened? happening? That was, supposed, that was supposed to be a nice interview. What on earth did you say to her? I think I think I denied being a racist. God, I hope so. You didn't say that you had <laughs> lots of black friends. You didn't go... Of course not. Well, I haven't. I haven't got any. What did you say about the office? <laughs> I, I, I said I wasn't, I wasn't aware. Someone else was handling the sale and I wasn't aware of any offers. Okay, so what's the line on this then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What is why? What is the line on this? I don't know. Don't look at me. But we we need to have a line. Uh, okay, okay, okay. We got movement. We got a break. What? Oh. What? What? The flat sold. What? To the Asian family what? for forty grand below the asking price. That's all right. Jesus, what is happening? Malcolm. Yeah. We're too late. What? All the papers have got hold of it. Wait, this is madness. I just own a flat. I haven't raped somebody. Yeah, they're calling the scandal Flatgate. Scandal? Flatgate. Well, that's crap. Hmm. I mean, it's a crap name for a scandal. <laughs> um, it's that, it's, that is just this sort of this sort of abstract terror of everything happening in the world. Like, that yeah. nothing could ever go right. And also it's made worse by the fact that everything is recordable now. You know, you go out into the street and get in a car, but someone has filmed you on their phone, get, you you know, getting getting out into the street and going into a car. Um, you know, everyone, anything you say now, there's no such thing as a private meeting. You know, as Mitt Romney discovered when he was speaking to fundraisers about, you know, the 47%. Um, you know, there was someone recording it all and then posting it up on the internet and it's all around the world and it, and before you know it, you're defined by it. Um, it's it's the equivalent of, um, you know, penguins falling over in a funny way on YouTube. It's, it's, it's like everything politicians do now are just, just go viral. It seems like you are particularly interested in the relationship between... Um, the way politicians and their cohorts try and uh, control their image and control their perception by mm-hmm. the world, and um, and the kind of ineffectuality well, that yeah. is built into the because system it's the, that, it's, that means that they really can't control their actual actions. Well, yeah, and it's also you know the ultimate uh, illusion, which is that you can control events. You can't. Events are arbitrary. 
they can't be predicted and uh, they can't be avoided. Uh, but the idea that you could have, that, you know, you can set the agenda, um, you know, by today we're going to discuss health and tomorrow we're going to talk about schooling. Well, no, you're not. If a volcano blows up and, and you know, you've got to deal with that or uh, there's suddenly a strike or there's, a, you know, you, you, you have no control. And it's this, I think, I think it's also tied into the fact that politicians think that they are powerful. And actually, political power has, over the last 10 or 15 years, diminished. Politicians are less and less influential than they once were. We are far more influenced by, you know, the large companies like uh, Facebook and Microsoft and Apple than we are by, you know, the Treasury or the Department of Education. Um, So in this, I think, you know, politicians... And politics are going through this bizarre existential crisis where more and more people can can see them, um, but can see that they've got less and less power. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy writer, director and producer Armando Iannucci. He's the creator and showrunner of the HBO comedy Veep. It's in its second season. One of the things that binds together uh, both your shows about politics and a lot of your past work is this enthusiasm for, I I guess, I I think I I called it broken language in the introduction, something like that. And and I want to play a clip from one of the first shows you worked on, a a really amazing show called The Day Today, Hmm. um, that I think is a really perfect illustration of this. Um, So it, it, it is a news program. And in this scene from the show, uh, the anchor, whose name is Collaterly Sisters, uh, describes the day in finance. Mm. There was a big smell of fear in the city today when leisure conglomerate Bottington Fiasco fell 10%, leaving the cup open for a hammer bid from Silica Fist Fruit at 12. There were no dollars today. And Collaterly Sisters. (laughs) On to the money markets. Quick look at the currency kidney. There's a lot of pressure there on the Bundesvessel, leading to a slight inflammation in the exchange tract, causing a negative flow of waste pounds across all international membranes. So in summary then, seven's a bit younger. Chris. (laughs) (laughs) That was was from about 20 years ago, that show. And uh, I mean, it was based on the fact that, you know, if you slightly closed your eyes and closed your ears when you were watching a news show... um, as long as they sounded serious, it didn't really matter what they said. That's the thing. You know, as long as you preserve this air of talking like that and everything you're saying sounds important, even though all you're saying is I'm holding a bottle of Peroni beer in my hand. And, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't matter um, because we're so convinced by the tone that it, it feels authentic. Uh, and therefore, um, you tell yourself it must be authentic. I, I'm not sure we'd be able to do a show like that now because I don't think we actually believe the media the way we do. We don't see the media as authoritative as we, as we used to. It's interesting because that uh, that function of essentially controlling tone yeah. publicly but not controlling content yeah. and in fact often getting it completely wrong mm. is mm. the narrative driving force of about a third of the episodes of Veep right yes the <laughs> vice president goes in public somewhere and yes. says things in mm. a way that is correct yes but but may or may not be saying something that is just 
utter nonsense. But isn't that also the case that politicians have to do that? You know, a microphone is thrust in their face and they feel that unless they say something, they will look foolish. And so they've just got to open their mouth and just hope to God that the right words come out and and keep talking. And the longer they talk, um, the more time they have to think about something that they can say at the end of the sentence. And it's that thing that politicians have of 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 knowing not to pause. You know, if a politician, um, if a politician uh, spoke uh, like this, um, they'd be destroyed because they sound like they, they, they don't, they haven't got a firm opinion. Whereas if a politician spoke like this and there was absolutely no pause in the sentences, even though the sentences never end and are going in many directions at once and actually you cannot really define what it is they're saying because the sentence never, never seems to come to an end but seems to have this pulse and this emphasis which makes it look like the politician knows precisely what it is they're saying and what kind of reaction to get from the audience then you believe it and 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 that goes on all the time so it's just it's just a performance it's just a mode of speech that they're trained to do which is julia louis dreyfus has this beautiful smile Mm. um and she'll be cornered on the show and she will just show that smile and (laughs) <laughs> and we, the audience, yeah. know that what that smile means is, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Yes. This is a disaster. Yes. I am trapped. Get, get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Blow the walls down. Get me out of here. Get me a helicopter. I don't care. Dig a tunnel. <laughs> Has spending time with the people that you are... Uh, writing about for this show, mm. and I don't mean that literally. None of these people are, are none of these characters are literal analogs for mm. people in real life. But just spending times in the in you know in the in the corridors of power, yeah. Has it changed your perspective on those people? I mean, have there been? Do you find yourself reacting to the news as an outsider differently now than you did twenty years ago? Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, spending time with these people has helped me be able to hopefully um, write them as three-dimensional, you know, flesh and blood, uh, warts and all, virtues and vices, personalities, as recognisable people that we can identify with and that's you know that's part of the reason that I, I have been spending a lot of time in DC and and you know talking to people I, I have found that over the last 20 years the more I've looked at how politics works the more I've come to sympathize with the politician um, in that I do I do believe a lot of people go into politics with genuine um, principles and ideals and aspirations um a lot of that gets knocked out of them in in that they turn into this uh person who who almost automatically has to compromise in order to get anything done but i also feel the more i know about how politics works that the less uh the less i would ever want to be in that situation i feel we not just we the media but we the public put 
so many expectations on our politicians now. You know, they're not allowed to make mistakes. They're not allowed to go on holiday. They're not allowed to earn any money. Um, they're not allowed to change their mind. They're not allowed to have a private life. That it, it, the we've we've actually made politics impossible uh, to be conducted sensibly and efficiently anymore. Um, and I think that's a great shame. Um, but it's something that I've. I think I've come to develop. Uh, I, I, it doesn't mean to say I'm letting them off the hook, and it doesn't mean to say that I won't want to kind of examine the, you know, the, any terrible decisions they've made or um, the, the bad consequences of any of their actions. But I do hold out a certain amount of sympathy for them. I want to talk briefly about. Um some of the truly spectacular profanity <laughs> that occurs on both <laughs> Veep and The Thick of It. Yeah. Um, when you conceived of The Thick of It, which came first, yeah. was just awe-inspiring vulgarity and profanity one of the original elements of the pitch? No, it wasn't. It, all I, I just wanted to make something that looked realistic and that captured what was then the Labour government under Tony Blair captured that quite authentically. Now, Blair's government was a very macho, testosterone-fueled, male-bonding type of environment. There were lots of 40-something guys who drank lots of beer and who did swear an awful lot. Now, swearing, I think, is actually quite dull. It's very repetitive. It's boring because it's the same same word again and again and again. Uh, If we wanted to capture the swearing element because... That made it feel real. But I wanted it to be interesting. Uh, I didn't want viewers to be turned off by the swearing. So that meant we as writers had to come up with creative phrases for swearing. And normally it's not the swear word itself, but it's the it's the phrase. It's the, the very graphic threat of physical violence that accompanies it um, that, that makes it. And it's just, it was really just our way of making it, breathing life into that kind of language and, and trying to make it more interesting and... and uh, give it a kind of persona of its own. And then that <laughs> bled over when I was doing Veep. You know, I did a bit of swearing research in Washington. And, you know, the Pentagon is just one swear word after another because it's just all military people. And they swear like there's no tomorrow. Um, and we, They swear we, like sailors own. and also soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also airmen. Whereas in the State Department, there's very little swearing. You see, it's all full of diplomats and uh, it's just frowned upon. Uh, the West Wing, lots of swearing because that's a high pressure. Uh, I think there's probably more swearing uh, under Democratic presidents than there is under Republican presidents. Unless the Republican president is is from a business background as opposed to uh, a sort of um, fundamentalist or religious background. So, so, so in Veep, there are certain characters who swear and there are those who don't. And, and we're very <laughs> clear as to, you know, who those should be and, and what the degree of swearing should be. The vice president's very keen on talking about her lady balls. Yes, well, that's very much, you know, she belongs to that school of... A female politician has to be more male than any male politician in order to get um, to get any credibility in in Washington. Um, so, so, so she has that kind of element. Armando, do you have in the writers' room? This is what I imagine. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I yeah. imagine you have one of those pinboard walls, 
with three by five cards, which are probably called something else mm. in the UK, uh, like ten centimeter by eight centimeter cards or whatever. <laughs> but uh, you just just cards, and each card has an unspeakable vulgarity. No, on it. No, no, and you no. Move them no, around. The walls are absolutely barren. Uh, no, it just all comes out of our heads, <laughs> and and also you know that kind of implies we have. Um, you know, 50 different swear words, and then we just organize them into different, you know, various combinations of those. And and I think the swearing is only funny when it seems to appear organically within the... seems to capture the emotion of the, of the speech that it turns up in. So they're very much... Um, they're very much... What's the, what's the phrase when you, when you... when you have a suit tailor-made for you? They're very bespoke. They're very... Um, <laughs> bespoke gentleman swearing yes is there Um, anything that um in coming up with an exclamation put down or mm -hmm. other vulgarity you and your team have have you and your team in in coming up with one of these ever Mm -hmm. come up with something that um surprised you like amazed you um well stuff comes out and i just think i mean these writers are really, you know, very gentle, quiet people. <laughs> uh, one of the gentlest and quietest of them came up with a line, something like, uh, uh, you know, Sue says to the vice president, uh, Congressman Furlong would like to see you. And uh, and she says, well, I would rather set fire to my vulva. So that's a no. <laughs> um, and I just think, I have no idea where that came from. I don't, I don't even know what the thought processes are that... that <laughs> <laughs> that allows that 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 those those words to come together. <laughs> well, uh, Armando, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come back on our show. <laughs> it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm I'm really excited to watch the rest of season two of Veep. Okay, well, thank you very much. Very nice to be back. Armando Inucci is the creator of the HBO series Veep. Season two is airing now, Sunday nights at ten. We'll hear from Billy Bragg and Julia Louis-Dreyfus after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Are you looking to escape your troubles? Hop on a boat with Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, and yes, shuffleboard. Book your tickets now online at BoatParty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, sponsored by MaximumFun.org, Splitsider, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Billy Bragg is a modern-day troubadour. He's a British singer-songwriter whose songs are both personal and political. It's folky music with rough punk edges. He's written lots of tender romantic love songs in his 30-plus year career, but he's probably best known for his political ones. Last month, he released a new album, Tooth and Nail. Most of it leans a bit more personal than political, but the songs still drive home a message. Here's a bit of Swallow My Pride. To the misanthropic, misbegotten merchants of gloom Who look into their crystal balls and prophesy our doom let the death knell chime It's the end of time Let the cynics put their blinkers on Until start decline 
don't become demoralized by this chorus complaint. It's a sure sign that the old world is terminally quaint, and tomorrow's gonna be a better day. No matter what the siren voices say. As a kid in the early '70s, Bragg heard a song that changed his life. Tune was a few years old at that point, but the lyrics resonated with him. It's a song by Bob Dylan called "The Times They Are Changing." This was in 1972, so it was quite a long way into Dylan's career. He didn't have much profile at the time, and he was—I wouldn't say he was obscure. I knew his name, but I didn't really know his stuff. I first heard the song when I was working as a Saturday boy in a, a shop in in my hometown in East London, which was. Uh, there was a hardware store upstairs and a record shop downstairs. There was a, something called a record booth in those days, which was a small cupboard-sized room where you went and sat and listened to the record that you were thinking of buying. And what I did was I would go in there and spend my lunch hour in the record booth. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming Or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing And if you don't listen to me You'll sink like a stone It's biblical, it's epic I'm writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming For the loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing And that harmonica comes in like lightning to illuminate the verses, it's just beautiful Um, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Now he's talking truth oh, to power. I love it. I love no it. Way, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. Oh, Here we come to Jericho now. Soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. It's, it's biblical. Here's the verse that really got me. Mothers and fathers, listen up. And mothers and fathers throughout the land And don't criticise what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Too right. Your old road is rapidly ageing Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand For the times they are changing Yeah, that was the verse that really put my ears up, I have to say. It was raw. He clearly had an attitude, and the attitude was, you're going to listen to this whether you like it or not, son, because this is really important. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast The slow one now will later be fast As the present now will later be past The order is rapidly 
fading And the first one now will later be last For the times, they are a-changing That was it. That was the clarion call of my youth. And I heard it kind of in isolation. It wasn't at a time when everybody was out in the streets in the 60s. You know, he was talking to me at a time when, in some ways, that whole thing had collapsed. And, you know, we were moving swiftly towards the denouement in Vietnam to Watergate. You know, the the assassinations had had left a pall over the the 60s. So I was kind of getting it at a strange time, but it it did seem like he he was talking to me. You know that I should I should involve myself in this in this generational battle. I should make my vo- voice heard. I should get my guitar and I should say what I have to say. Billy Bragg's latest album is called Tooth and Nail. This week he's got a few tour dates in the Eastern United States. You can find details at his website, Billy Bragg Bragg spelled with two G's. dot co. dot uk. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was 21 when she was cast on Saturday Night Live. Her three seasons on the show were tough ones, but she made a friend. Another person having a terrible time on the show, Larry David. Of course, Larry David went on to cast her in a role that changed her life irrevocably, Seinfeld's Elaine Bennis. She quickly went on the show from love interest to full-fledged member of the gang and was an essential ingredient in one of the greatest television programs of all time. Now she's starring as Vice President Selena Meyer on HBO's Veep. It's a show about men and women desperate for power, none more so than perhaps the most powerless powerful person in Washington, the VP. Here she is in a scene from the show. The vice president and her staff are watching the midterm election returns, which are going very, very badly. And the chief of staff, played by Anna Chlumsky, gets a text from her family. Aim. Are you listening? My, uh, yes, my, my mom just called. My dad may have had a stroke. Oh, my God. Amy, I'm so sorry. Is he speaking? Well, he, he told my mom he felt worse that time he ate gay Jap raw fish. Oh, Amy, that's a great sign. Because that's a very complex sentence. Mm-hmm. Unless he's slurring his words. Well, it, so, um, do you need to go and be with him? No, my mom said he was asking for me, but that's my, my sister's there. Oh, good. Seriously, if you walked in, can you imagine how stressed out he might be? Like, what are you doing here? Isn't it time that you be with the Veep? It's the freaking midterms, and isn't she going to take this opportunity to expand her role in the White House or, you know, whatever he might say? But if you need to go, Amy, you should go. No, no, I'm, no. I'm good. I'm no. here. All right, good. So you got what I said? <laughs> Julia Louis-Dreyfus, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's really cool to be here. It's it's one of the things I really love about Veep is how enthusiastically every character on the show turns everything to self-interest immediately. Like within the course of a sentence, things transform from <laughs> sincere interest in others <laughs> to a sort of venal grab for power. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? N- none more so, I would say, than Selena, but... Um... But yeah, uh, uh, ultimately they they're serving s- sort of her staff. Selena's staff is serving her in an effort to move on from her. I would say, yeah. There's there's an interesting line you have to walk in playing this character. Um, obviously, 
part of what's funny about the show is things going wrong. You know, partly the show is a farce about what a disaster Washington is. Mm -hmm. But partly also, you're the vice president, and people don't become the vice president for no reason at all. Right. Um, And so you have to find a way to be both competent enough (laughs) to have become next in line to the presidency and also disastrous enough for the show to be funny. Yeah, it is a tricky line. It's funny that you say that because when we first started the show, you know, in fact, when Armando, who's the uh, – Inucci, who's the uh, creator and executive producer of the show and the, really the, the genius behind the show, the voice, the, the um, you know, he he's running the whole deal. And, and when he and I first spoke about the show and this character – we talked about how we didn't want her to be just a bumbling idiot, which is an easy place to go, and you could definitely make that funny. But it's the easiest way to go. Now, she does trip over words and so on and so forth, but there's another layer in there as well. And I like to think of that kind of when she does screw up using a word incorrectly or or whatever. Ever it happens to be, I, I think of it as sort of a paralysis that sets in, um, who, who, whose roots are 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 really about frustration. Um, her frustration is so profound, and I completely understand that. And and certainly for myself, when I get livid, it's very difficult for me to find language. And so. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky line, and I hope that we we walk it well. We're trying to anyway. But before you um, started the show, you talked to a, a couple of vice presidents. I know one of them was Al Gore. I don't know any other. If you're allowed to say any other vice presidents you may have spoken with, well, I've subsequently spoken with Joe Biden, and I did speak with others, but I'm not allowed to say. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, I will be executed. I think. Well, I mean, I. I think we know that you hang out with Cheney just regularly anyway, right? Yeah, he's a good bud. <laughs> um, so uh, did you learn anything from them that you didn't expect? I mean, I'm sure you, you know, you've been, you've spent part of your time as an activist and you've also been a famous person for 15, 20 years. Um, I'm sure you've met politicians, you know, but were there things about their life that you didn't expect that you learned from them? Um, well, gen- sort of generally, I would say that there was confirmation for me that these people are just regular people. And even though you kind of know that, it is astounding to see it. Um, and and I would say that that's, you know, it, it, it's... It, I mean, you do know it, but, you know, then when they talk about the realities of what it's like to have secret service in the car when you're having a a private conversation with your kids or your wife or whatever that, you know, what that's like or um, uh, the frustrations of the position and and uh, and and they can be real um, and understandably so. But it's amazing to hear it from a, um, somebody who's lived it and who who is you know we think of these people on on uh, they're on pedestals they are for me anyway I I have the utmost respect for people who who 
who are in government and uh, in the executive branch or, you know, in Congress or whatever. It is amazing what they do. Uh, but it, 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 I understand to, to hear about the frustrations of that, whatever the position happens to be, the, the level of devotion, the le- certain levels of incompetence, you know, it's just folks working hard at a job. I mean, all of those things that you just said about public servants, yeah. in my mind, I could also apply to people who were on Seinfeld. And I wonder if maybe maybe the public servants are doing work that's a little bit more important. But I, I wonder if you can relate to the weird ways that your life changed when you were all of a sudden uh, like an uh, like a famous person famous person. Well, you see, uh, uh, there's t- there's so many um, parallels between the entertainment business and th- the business of politics, the political world. And I definitely draw on that. But you need to understand that I don't, I mean, yeah, I'm famous, but I'm, I'm, I don't walk around thinking I'm so famous. Everybody knows me. This is not in my, uh, it doesn't occur to me. You know, I'm just living my life. Um, but <clears throat> there are certain realities about being known when you walk down the street. Well, I mean, there's just this. There's, for example, there's this thing that um, uh, that your character on Veep does, which is she gets into a a weird social interaction with someone that she doesn't know at an event or whatever. There's an episode. Uh, there's an episode where you go to a pork industry event that's a pig roast and are having all these weird, awkward interactions with people. Right. And just from time to time, you see a moment in the conversation where your character is lost or not, not as in can't follow, but just doesn't know where to go. And you just have a big, beautiful smile, put a big, beautiful smile on your face. Uh Uh-huh. And... (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just you you know you bring out the pearly whites, and it it works okay for your character. Yeah, and I can imagine that situation happening to you in life, where you are well known to someone that you're talking to that, who doesn't know you well, and it's simply incumbent upon you to put a pleasant face on the interaction. No matter whether you're having a good day or a bad day or whatever. That's correct. And so I can tap into that very easily. And in fact, it's sort of a bonus because a lot of those people that I'm, you know, when I'm working the crowd on the show or we have a huge scene, we have many scenes with lots and lots of extras, they can react to me and they're probably maybe reacting to me because I'm a, a TV personality, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but it really works well. It, it it morphs very well into using that as Selena Meyer reaction, audience reactions to Selena Meyer. It's, it, it, it works beautifully. But there is – so, yes, there is a, a thing that I can definitely use from my life experience in terms of being known um, that I can put into Selena, and it, it's great. There's also a lot of of what I know in terms of uh, the the frustrations of you know uh, you know uh, I can I can definitely identify with her frustrations of being very powerful and powerless at the same time. Um, number two, nobody says I'm number two. 
You know, that's not in the lexicon of, of you know, our American culture. No one boasts that. Um, and yet she's a very – and yet she's the vice president. So it's a, it's a strange mix. I completely identify that as somebody who's, you know, I sell – sort of who I am. Um, uh, there, there are plenty, plenty gobs and gobs of jobs I have not gotten. I wished I'd gotten. I'm frustrated about. Um, there's always something bigger, better. And I get that. One of the other things that's, uh, I think, a rich parallel between a ho- Hollywood and the political world is that in both places, there are people who are trying to do something that they really, really believe in. And in Hollywood, it's people trying to create art. Mm-hmm. And in the political world, it's people trying to change the world for the better, you know, change the way the government affects people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them face in doing that this challenge, which is you also have to get people to approve of you. Um, and, it's a nightmare. And it can be taken away <laughs> at any moment, right? That's right. And that's horrifying. Yeah, that's right. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I quit. I'm out. Let HBO know. Call somebody. <laughs> Call my agent. But it's true. It's uh, your your heart and soul are very much on the line. Um, so I get it. What was it like for you when uh, you were cast on Saturday Night Live out of college? It was. Did you even know you you got cast based so... on a show you did? Did you know there was casting people coming to the show? No, the producers from SNL were in the audience, and they were. And I was going to uh, Northwestern University at the time, and it was the summer between my junior and senior year. And we, I was doing a show with Practical Theater Company, and. And it was a big hit in Chicago. We did not know that the producers from SNL were there. But what you need to understand is that I grew up watching Saturday Night Live, the original cast. And Saturday Night Live in the seven, in the late 70s was, I it's mean— It's as big a cultural phenomenon as could exist. And right. you were a teenager. You were and like was, in high school. I was its demographic. I, you know, I stayed up late to watch it. I thought it was—there uh, was nothing like it on television. And— um, and it was it was a phenomenon, right? And then this happens, and we get offered this job, and it was very Cinderella going to the ball feeling in the in the moment. And then, of course, it didn't turn out to be really the ball, but um, it was a great place to learn a lot very very quickly. And I certainly did, I oh. certainly did. But it in the moment, it was like, oh my god, my life has just changed completely. And in fact, it did change completely, but um, not in ways that I thought it would. How was it different? Um, well, it, it wasn't being, you know, it wasn't being run at the, when I was there by the same people. It wasn't Lauren running it. And it was not a female-friendly environment at all. And I was extremely naive. I mean, like, g- greener than green about how the show was done and I figured it was ensemble and we could all work together and come up with sketches. But that is not the case. It was a very, very, very competitive environment. And I didn't go in. I wasn't a stand-up. I was just this 21-year-old actress who could do sketch comedy, you know. 
And a lot of people bring to Saturday Night Live characters. a sort of passel of characters that they've developed at the Groundlings or Second City or something like that. Stuff that they will, you know, sometimes will literally do in an audition and then do their first week on the show and then will have become a recurring character. They will have like a toolbox that they can always go into and say, well, I've got Fat Marty. Right. I didn't have a Fat Marty. Uh, I had one character who never <laughs> actually... But even with that, I, I didn't uh, – I, I was going to say I had one character that I, I did on stage that was a big hit, uh, an evangelical uh, woman named April May June. And um, – but I didn't know even with that how to translate that to to in front of the camera. I was very, very um, uh, out of my uh, – I was not – this was not my um, – I didn't go in with experience, experience, experience. I came in with inexperience, but good intentions. And um, and there were a lot of drugs going on. I wasn't really understanding. I didn't understand that people were, you know, really coked up and stuff, and I didn't get that. So it was like these sketches are 30 pages long, and everyone's laughing, and I couldn't understand why they're laughing. You know, I was really uh, out of my element. But um, – but I will tell you that I made a, I made good friends when I was there. I met really cool people. And, uh, you know, it was trial by fire. I mean, I really learned how to do live television. And that was a great skill to walk, a, walk out of there with. Um, and it was a hardship. And it was also, you know, fundamentally, I walked out of there thinking, okay, I'm not going to do anything again that isn't fun. And I and that's so Pollyanna-ish sounding, but I've sort of applied it ever since, and it's worked. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, the Emmy-winning actress who played Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld. Now she stars as Vice President Selena Meyer in the HBO comedy Veep. Let's talk a, a little bit about um, uh, about Seinfeld. Sure. You were you were on a show, I, I think, for a couple of years in between Saturday Night Live and Seinfeld, right? Correct. I, I, uh, I did a show uh, for uh, Gary Goldberg's company. It was actually run by Andy Borowitz, um, and it was called Day by Day. And I did that for two years, um, and that was a show on NBC. Were you hot off the heels of that show that you did in between when you got the script for the Seinfeld Chronicles? Or I guess it was the, probably the first couple scripts because your character was added after the pilot. Um, yeah, it was, qu- it was sh- shortly thereafter having made uh, this series that it got sent to me. And it was from Larry, and he had written this thing. And, and I remember reading... Like, I think there was very little for me to do in two out of the four scripts, as I recall. And I remember thinking, ah, yeah, but this is funny. This is a different voice. I hadn't read anything like this ever. The jokes were um, different. And so I went in not dying to do it, but went in to talk to Larry and meet Jerry. And we hit it off right away, and then we read a scene together, and it felt really real and natural. And so we made a deal over the weekend, and we were shooting the the the. Actually, it wasn't the pilot; they already made the pilot. We were shooting that that first episode the next week. It was a lovely, easy thing, frankly. I want to play a a little clip of a scene from a, a relatively early episode of the show called "The Chinese Restaurant," and this was an episode that I think 
helped define what the show was and could be. It was one of the episodes where the show really found its voice. So in this scene, uh, Elaine, played by you, and Jerry and George are waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant, and uh, your character, Elaine, is really hungry. Yeah. No, it's not fair that people are seated first come, first served. It should be based on who's hungriest. (laughs) (sighs) I feel like just walking over there and taking some food off of somebody's plate. I'll tell you what. There's 50 bucks in it for you if you do it. (laughs) What do you mean? You walk over to that table, you pick up an egg roll, you don't say anything... You eat it, say thank you very much, (laughs) wipe your mouth, walk away, I give you 50 bucks. (laughs) What are they going to do? They won't do anything. In fact, you'll be giving them a story to tell for the rest of their lives. 50 bucks? You'll give me 50 bucks? 50 bucks. That table over there, the three couples. Okay, I don't want to go over there and do it and then come back here and find out there was some little loophole like I didn't put mustard on it. No, no tricks. Should I do it, George? For 50 bucks? I put my face in this soup and blow. <laughs> that was a fun night shooting that. My voice has changed. What the hell's going on? I was actually struck by that listening to it, too. Is that a, like a funky clip or... or um? Am I going through puberty? There's this. There's two things. (laughs) There's in my mind. There's two really uh, magical elements on Seinfeld that make it Seinfeld, Mm. and they are one is this thing that that Larry David has now taken to the nth degree on Curb Your Enthusiasm, another spectacular show that you appeared on, which is um, he seems to be upset by some societal convention. And then decides what if what would happen if that societal convention was defied? Like, Mm -hmm. what if the stakes became high enough with that weird little thing Mm -hmm. that someone broke the rules? Mm -hmm. The other thing is this rhythm of the show, which you're just finding in this very early episode. Yeah. But it became almost like a musical show where it could have I would have laughed at Seinfeld without words, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And. (laughs) I I wonder if you remember a, a point where you felt like you you understood what the show was about. Yeah, it was early on when I read the first three or four scripts. And I think it was the first episode I did. And there was some dialogue about, do you want to go out to eat? Yeah. Where do you want to go? I don't care. I'm not hungry. And I thought, yeah, that's the show for me. Because that's not really uh, – I mean, certainly at that time, that was not a conventional sitcom joke. That was very uh, quirky, behavioral, small, strange, and definitely funny. But it had a, a, a it has a real quality to it that I really identified with. There's almost no jokes on Seinfeld. I mean, if you compare Seinfeld to, I've been watching a lot of Cheers lately, which is obviously about as good a show could be as well. Yeah. Um, Cheers is full of jokes. Yes. Um, and they're usually, I mean, to their credit, they're usually character driven and so on and so forth, but they're joke jokes. Yeah. And if you watch an episode of Seinfeld, the main joke is usually that 
these people are too invested in something that's small. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. I, I mean, and, and the dialogue I just described is, is evidence of that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the crazy-making minutiae of, of behavior and life. And I just love that kind of humor. I really do. I mean, I even think it's, it's on Veep, you know? It's the same sort of thing. I kind of I love it. Was there a point where you felt like Elaine was part of the show in the way that she could slash should be? Was there a point? Um, you know, a single point. I can't really. I can't really identify. I was definitely um, always asking Larry could, and Jerry, "Could I have more material? I want more material." I really was. I won't lie. Um, and uh, but I know that the contest episode was very important from a gender point of view that she was in that episode. I mean, nowadays with everybody, you know, I, now I sound like an old woman, but you know, nowadays everyone's you know showing their their junk and and so on and so forth on television and so whatever, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But it was a big deal on you know in prime time to be talking. And or I should say not talking, but talking about masturbation was unbelievable. And to be talking about a woman masturbating, unbelievable without talking about it. And the fact that I, uh, that Elaine was a part of that contest, I think, was very important. Let's take a listen to a clip from the contest episode of Seinfeld. Um, this episode, obviously, um, for folks who don't remember it, was about the main character's uh, electing to see who could go the longest without <laughs> engaging in onanism. Um, and so, so stupid. This, this might not be appropriate for uh, younger listeners. I am never doing that again. What? You mean in your mother's house or all together? All together. Oh, like, oh, oh give me yeah. a break. Right. <laughs> Come on. You don't think I can? No chance. <laughs> You think you could? Well, I know I could hold out longer than you. Care to make it interesting? <laughs> sure, how much? Hundred dollars? You're on. Wait a second, wait a second. Count me in on this. <laughs> you? Yeah. You'll be out before we get the check. I want to be in on this, too. Oh, no, no. no, 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 no. All right. All right. It's a different Why? thing because you're a woman. Uh, so it's easier for a woman not to do it than a man. Oh. We have to do it. It's part of our lifestyle. <laughs> it's like uh, shaving. Oh, that is such a baloney. I shave my legs. Not every day. <laughs> I think Elaine was a really interesting character um, in gender terms because I think it's rare for... Uh, in a show with a predominantly male cast, A, for the female character to sort of stand on equal ground with the other cast members, um, B, for the female character not just to be a um, romantic interest, and C, for her to do those first two things without, um, you know, without uh, just being written as a, a you know, a, like a, without feeling like a character that was written for a man and just happened to be cast with a woman, which is to say, Elaine is feminine, 
um, and feels like a woman, and at the same time is not the romantic target of the, uh, uh, the of the rest of the cast, and gets to do real jokes and stand with the other characters. And that feels like a really special thing to me. Well, thanks. I'm so happy you said that. That's a tremendous compliment, and I'm I'm I uh, I I'm very I'm blushing. I think that's really nice. Um, I. <clears throat> Uh, and it's also a compliment to the writing of the show, obviously. But, uh, I, you know, I remember when um, – and, and Friends was a great show. It came on a few years after we were on. I can't remember exactly. but um, and, and it was very funny and so on and so forth. But it was also very, um, you know, will they or won't they? And, and it was very sexy. And I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, I haven't been – I, I – I, I, it didn't occur to me to uh, s- sort of do that. To to um, I don't know. I was just trying to be really funny all the time. That was really my agenda. It wasn't trying to you know. I I, I wasn't trying to look a certain way to be to uh, brand myself sort of in a in a sexy way. I mean, not that there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that necessarily, but I, I just was very focused on getting, uh, uh, the most funny I could out of any moment, you know? So I'm, I'm, thank you. More with Julia Louis-Dreyfus after a break. She'll reveal her favorite dirty phrase from Veep. It might sound like Morse code on the radio. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm homosexual Brian Stoffy. And I'm feminasty Aaron Gibson, and we host Throwing Shade, Shade, where we take a weekly look at all the issues important to ladies and gays and treat them with much less respect than they deserve. It's for gay people. It's for straight people. It's for ladies. It's for people who love to laugh, who love comedy, and love tragedy and love crying. And who hate drinking and driving because that's messed up. And don't text. Check out Throwing Shade. Subscribe for free in iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the comic actress Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She was cast on Saturday Night Live when she was 21, became famous as Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld, and now stars on the HBO comedy Veep. There's this thing about... um, uh, I I, I feel like I read a a New Yorker article about this that that sort of blew my mind, Mm -hmm. about romantic comedy leads, female leads in romantic comedies, where they sort of have to ritually debase themselves at the beginning of the film in in order for the audience to like them, um, you know. Hmm. Usually, and they have to find a way to do this that um, you know keeps their relationship with the audience, which often just means falling down a lot. Really? Yeah. I mean, That's if you think about it, like uh, yes, every female romantic comedy lead, especially in a more formulaic romantic comedy, she falls down like four times in the beginning of the movie. Uh huh. Um, and otherwise, it's because I guess the audience will resent them for uh, for. Being having a happy ending, being strong, doing something actually funny on purpose, um, something uh-huh. like that. And one of the things that I I really like about Elaine is that um, you know it really feels like it, it feels like comedy choices that you're making uh-huh. on this show. You know what I mean? Yeah, like the same kind of comedy choices that anyone else would make if they were just trying to make their character funny. Right. Yeah, well, that's what I was doing. That's interesting. That's such an interesting point about a romantic comedy, the idea of sort of there has to be a little bit of victim in there in order to 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And mm. Elaine, and Elaine, and one of the things about Elaine as a character is she is basically zero percent victim. She is like she will like bludgeon the other characters, <laughs> both verbally and physically. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. She was a she was a ballsy um, um, person, which I love. Was there like an affirmative decision that? that the Elaine character would involve a lot of hitting the other characters and pushing the other characters. No, I think I just did it. I mean, I don't really remember how that uh, evolved, except that I am physical. And uh, and I don't know. These guys are bigger than me, and so I would just push them around because they were irritating me. And so it sort of worked in the rehearsal process, and then it sort of took on it had sort of legs of its own and 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 uh and so, and sort of that sort of get out thing which is sort of silly but anyway it it was a part of uh oh god and like the toupee that was so much fun to do that pulling of the 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 <laughs> the toupee off of Jason and in that scene and i don't know it just all of that stuff uh a lot of it came out of the rehearsal process and then they started to write to it too and there's something great. Uh, I mean, I, it made me. I was thinking about it uh, because I was thinking about Veep, and Veep is so much a show about power, mm. um, and about you know, it basically about status changing in an instant, left and right, with every you know interaction with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking that I think one of the things that's so funny about Elaine on Seinfeld is that you are smaller than your castmates. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of you physically dominating them mm. is just funny every time. Yeah, because I played somebody who knew that she could physically dominate them and really did a lot. So that's fun, too. I, I saw you somewhere say that um, you thought one of the corollaries between your character on Veep, the vice president, and uh, Elaine was rage. Yeah. Can you tell me first? Tell me about what did you see as being the the rage in Elaine? Maybe it's a testament to what a pleasant person presence you are on screen. But I don't. When I think Elaine, I don't necessarily think rage. Well, her life isn't really going the way that she uh, thinks that she deserves to have it go, and she's hanging around with these losers, and it's it's um, it's. <laughs> It's exhausting. There was there was a line, and maybe you guys can find it. That you and I'm trying to remember. It might have been in the Pinter episode, the when the show plays backwards. But there's a line that she says, and we howled and howled about it. The writers, I just remember all of us dying. <laughs> I can't spend the rest of my life coming into this stinking apartment every 10 minutes to pour over the excruciating minutia of every single daily event. In other words, she's spinning her wheels with these guys, and it's enraging. It's enraging. She should, you know, she should have a, a, a solid career. She should either marry Jerry or not and move away. Um, and, you know, George and Kramer, come on. What is she doing with her life? But what's great about that is is that she also just has these moments of ineptitude that's every bit as grand as the other character's ineptitude. I mean, 
you know, I'm sure people ask you to do that horrible dance. They from do. The episode where you do the horrible dance. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> I do not do that. That's that's enough of that. I can't even watch it on I can't not even, even watch when it. you're at home alone with your husband. Why or... would I do that? <laughs> Why would I dance like that? <laughs> did you think did were were there was a choreographer brought on? To increase the indignity of that dance, was it sui generis? Did you create it out of whole cloth? I created it. Yeah, I did. Did I you? Did. did you have to like? Where did you like stand at home in front of a full length mirror yes. and just think which of these dance moves looks the worst? Yeah, I remember my mom was staying with us at the time visiting, and I came downstairs to the kitchen and I said, "Okay, which looks worse?" I had a couple of options, and uh, and they all voted for the one that you. That you saw. I mean, we couldn't, you know, I mean, I'm not obvious. I was going to say, I'm not a professional dancer in case you hadn't surmised that already. But I mean, in other words, but, but that said, I can dance a little bit. And so, um, so they couldn't play the music when I was doing that, because if they played music, all of those herky jerky moves I, it would be hard to fight the rhythm of the music, but, um, you know, fight against it, I mean, you know, because it needs to be not in sync with anything. You would accidentally start dra- dancing properly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, kind of, yes. You would be moved by the spirit of the actual dance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Julia Louis-Dreyfus, the Emmy-winning actress who played Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld. Now she stars as Vice President Selena Meyer in the HBO comedy Veep. I, I, this is something that, you, 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 that we talked about very briefly about Veep, but I, I want to talk about it a little bit more. Um, that relationship between you and your staff is really one of the central elements of the show. Yeah. That when you are the vice president, um, you are responsible for so much, even if that's just shaking hands with people and knowing what their child's name is. Yeah. That there's no way you can do it without being completely reliant on other people. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of, of like uh, Artie, the producer from the Larry Sanders show, in his relationship with Larry Sanders on that show. Mm. There's just, just this thing where it is a person that is needed. You need the support of this group of people. And so when they are... Failures. It is particularly painful. Yeah, and when you yourself, as the leader of the group, is a failure, it, it's a, it's a, it's like a triple decker cake or sandwich or something. I mean, it's it's a lot of layers. Um, but you, the, the vice president's office functions like that, and of course, the, the president's office functions functions like that, and then some, and then some. Um, but it really the the efficiency and the importance of the vice president's off the the role of vice president really does hinge on that relationship with the president. And of course, she has a terrible relationship with the president. Although it's going to, you'll see, change a little bit here coming up in season two. So things th- things do get altered. Um, but uh, yeah, they. And by the way, this is also true uh, in my experience in the research I did in you know in Congress as well. There are th- these people that are so devoted to their senator. For instance, I had this one scheduler for one very uh, prominent senator say that she slept with her BlackBerry on the pillow next to her every night. And she said that with great pride. And I thought that's incredible. I mean, she has to because if he's traveling or, you know, she has to be available to him 
24-7. And, um, and she is expected to be. And, you know, important issues hang in the balance. And, um, and so this is how it works with our staff on the show except that they're, you know, nowhere near as competent as that particular schedule was with that particular center. Veep, um, like the other shows that Armando Iannucci has made, is probably has some of the densest language, as well as some of the most profane language that's ever been on television. And you've worked a lot in front of an audience on television, yeah. which requires a rhythm that involves waiting for laughter. Right. I mean, one of the amazing things about Seinfeld is that you were able to maintain that rhythm while there was an audience laughing at it. And um, the rhythm of that show. Yeah. Um, how do you... I mean, you had a rehearsal period before the first season, which is very unusual in television. But, like, how do you even just say the number of words you need to say and have it be something coherent, like give each of them actual meaning. Well, I mean, that's where you, you know, I mean, first of all, they, they do have meaning. So you just have to find the truth in it and then you just do it. I mean, that's your, your job as an actor, uh, I suppose. But it is very different doing comedy without an audience. And there's a lot to be said for doing it with an audience and a lot to be said for not doing it with, with an audience. I mean, and I, I love both formats. It was an adjustment for me uh, initially to do episode after episode without an audience because it's really divine to get a laugh. Um, it's it's a it's an incredible high, and it's a wonderful way of connecting with the people you're trying to entertain. But that said, there is something that happens when you don't have an audience. Uh, there is a kind of reality that you can get into which you can't with an audience. And um, But I will tell you that after so many uh, – almost after every take, I look around to see, you know, are our camera operators laughing? I, I, I love to get that feedback. I really do. Is there something that you said um, – and you, if it's profane, you can say the profanities. We'll just bleep them out on the radio uh-huh. – that was particularly – amazing on the show that just stuck in your head there's these bits of language that are unreal on the program yeah i mean what i loved very much from season one and we have some doozies coming up in season two very much from season one and we have some doozies coming up in season two but from season one i loved uh that's like trying to use a croissant as a fucking dildo (laughs) let me let me spell it out for you it doesn't do the job, and it makes a fucking mess. <laughs> and I really, really, really enjoyed that. But who wouldn't? It's a great image. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Bullseye. It was really great to have you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. Veep airs uh, Sunday nights at 10 on HBO. We're in the middle of season two, and if you're not watching it, you, you really ought to be. Yeah, you're a loser if you're not watching it. Give me a break. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So I'll open this week by saying this. Rap isn't poetry. 
poetry is poetry. Rap is rap. Rap is a musical performance. The MC, as Rakim, one of the best rappers ever put it, is the microphone soloist. A poem might be sonorous, lovely to the ear, but it's still a completely different form. It's not a song. But just as some of the best poetry has great musicality, some of the best rapping is as densely, tightly packed with figurative language and surprising meaning as a poem. Often the layers of uh, allusion and, and secondary meanings are hidden. Intentionally so, in fact. A marginalized culture is incentivized to speak a language its oppressor doesn't speak, right? I'll give you an example. One verse from a Jay-Z song called Threat. Jay-Z might be the greatest rapper ever, but his lyrics often read as simple. His performances, which seem completely effortless, that's sort of the point, contribute to that misperception. The truth is, Jay-Z's lyrics are a remarkable web of meanings. So, back to threat. Basically, the song does what it says on the package. It's a threat. But that's the basis for a shifting series of linguistic tricks and feints and echoes that I think demands explication. So let's do it. He starts with an allusion to the Vegas mob. The hole in the desert being necessary to build the Sands Casino, the famous casino, and also necessary to bury you. Lay out blueprint plans on you. Which incidentally is the name of Jay's first classic album, The Blueprint. In other words, if you're a rapper, he destroyed you by defining what hip-hop could be and leaving you out of his plans. He built hip-hop on top of you. So who could represent the Vegas mob better than the Rat Pack, right? And who's a greater Sinatra than Jay-Z, who has the same cool, the same detachment, the same, well, honestly, the same implicit threat of violence? Um, explicit sometimes, and who's willing to have his underling tap dance on your grave. And by the way, Davis Jr. isn't the only Sam in show business. Uh, Jay's bodyguard is named Samson. I put the boy in the box like David Blaine, let the audience watch, it ain't a thing. If that box is made of glass, it's the big showpiece of Vegas star David Blaine. But to put someone in a pine box while everyone watches is obviously a much scarier threat. Anyway, here's where another idea is introduced. Keep in mind this record from 2003 when we'd just gotten ourselves into some really significant desert wars. So suddenly the desert isn't in Nevada. In this new formulation, Jay-Z will bring the full George Bush down upon you. A preemptive strike. For the oil when you car, lift up your hood. Run it and lift up your whole hood like you got oil under it. So he'll do all that, not for the natural resources of the entire nation of Iraq, but for something as inconsequential as the oil in your car. And halfway through, Jay shifts meaning again, by the way, because when he says he'll lift up your hood in the next line, he's talking about your hood, not your hood. That is to say, where you live, not what covers your car's engine. He's saying that like the president, the former president, George W. Bush, he's not afraid to lay waste to your entire community to get at one person. 
And that one person, that's you. Like castor oil, you are castor choy, you change your face, or the bullets change all that for you. Y'all just target. A little uh, lighter now, actually. If you don't remember the movie Face Off, I can hardly blame you. Caster Troy was one of the protagonists who had his face transplanted. So his face changed in, in the very literal sense. And he also shot a few dudes, which is the kind of face change Jay is more interested in here. And there's actually another little joke here. He gets to Caster Troy through his oil metaphor and Caster Oil which, of course, will change your face into what in the Bay Area they call a fizz face, which is to say the face equivalent of bleh. Anyway, with that, Jay slides back into cars. Y'all the Rodgers the bullets, please don't make me talk it in your upper level. Valet a couple strays from the special. God bless you. He didn't want to kill you, by the way. You made him to it. So... That's a lot, right? Let's put this thing to rest. Rap's not poetry. That doesn't mean it's not worth a close listen. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Thanks this week to Nick Casenza at Guildfree Studios in London for engineering help with our interview with Armando Inucci. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.